Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today, I wanted to talk to you about some of the problems that are going on with Microsoft Windows 10. Now, it's still Windows 10. It's been Windows 10 for a couple years. They kind of do an upgrade here and there, but apparently Microsoft has said that Windows 10 is the platform of Windows that is going to evolve over the next decade or so, or until they decide to do some other name of an operating system that they intend to market once this you know craps out. So for right now, it's Windows 10, but it's new. It's a new type of Windows 10. It got upgraded and pushed onto a lot of systems, whether maybe you wanted it or not in some circumstances, like original Windows 10 maybe. Uh, but with these sort of forced upgrade systems, I guess there's a lot of computers or a lot of people that are sort of running into blue screens where you just never even reinstalled an operating system. What does that mean? You know, like just all these lot. I don't understand why this is better. It seems like something if I, as a power user, I would really try and restrict those kind of activities that are, that are going to be reinstalling operating systems on my, uh, my windows machine. I understand the security implications. I know all the holes that existed in all those windows XP systems that never got, uh, you know, never got patched and we're just running online without, you know, any kind of security or anything for years, probably decades that were running important, sensitive information within companies and within data systems forever. So uh, a lot of, a lot of opportunity to do better than that, but man, definitely I would be so frustrated if I had, uh, if I had some kind of windows 10 reboot problem that I didn't even know about, Ugh, it would drive me crazy. So You can see more of my work at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. We did like a bunch of traveling and we recorded a bunch of stuff, which uh, was pretty cool. It was kind of a special project. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Marina, what kind of special work were we doing? It was super cool. We were doing some 360 video and photo recording. And it was really cool. Yeah, it was really interesting doing that. I did like a little bit of a podcast talking about the idea of 360 video and, and some of the GoPro Fusion stuff. But yeah, it was really interesting um, having the GoPro Fusion for for a week. We rented it and uh, we went around and we shot like a bunch of footage all over Oregon and a whole lot of different spots of, uh, of some of like the natural areas that we've been where we've, we've had like the, the just, I don't know, it's probably like the more high profile locations for landscapes in a lot of the, the areas in Oregon. So it was really cool getting to run around and uh, maybe be some of the first people to shoot um, some high end or higher quality 360 footage in those areas. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. I think there's some of the spots we got to that, uh, I don't think I really see many regular photos from. Yeah, yeah, not many people yeah, really go there cool in the first place. Yeah, and and really some of those locations were were, were incredibly beautiful. Like I was thinking about, Definitely. I was thinking about like uh, Sisters Rock that we did at the end. That that evening was just so cool. But just the uh, the the way that the three sixty video virtualizes is really interesting to, to look at, and it's kind of a, a neat kind of optical effect when you know you get to look out and you get to kind of turn your head and see just sort of this, the field of view that you would see if you were experiencing the place if you were traveling there. But it's really fun to get to see, especially in, in certain locations, you know, where you really get to turn your head and see different uh, aspects to the environment that are going on. Like yeah. There's something going on. Yeah. It was, it's really cool. Uh, what a great job we, uh, the GoPro uh, camera does. 
Yeah. Just with the quality of it, it looks so real and so beautiful. Yeah, I was really interested in uh, in how it was going to do, but uh, but yeah, the GoPro Fusion is I think uh, the the newest offering from uh, the GoPro camera company, and and you know they have they have their the regular. Uh, you know, two-dimensional system still too, but uh, but the three three D six system is really interesting. It's not th- sorry, it's not three D, but it's a three hundred and sixty degree spherical image. It's built. I was talking about an equo rectilinear image that's stitched together from two cameras that record one hundred and eighty degrees of your field of vision, and then that's brought into the computer and stitched with the special software, the uh, the Fusion Studio software. And it's really interesting how it works, but I think all of this is really pretty new. If I understood right from uh, from like the the invoice and what I understood about GoPros, uh, these cameras really have just come out. I think it was it was marked as the, the, like the innovative product of the year at CES this year. So back in January, it was kind of pre-announced, and it went, you know, it went some, some more, you know, it's interesting. But uh, but I think it has really just come out for release in April now, and then so we're probably some of the first people to to even rent it from this company that has it available. So it was cool, yeah. Last couple of weeks of uh, of May, and uh, yeah, trying some of the new technology out. But the GoPro Fusion is probably the most adept 360 camera that's available for consumer use right now. And I think there was the other camera, the Rilo, which is a 360 degree camera that also has some of the video gimbal stuff that the GoPro has, but really I think the GoPro is higher end. And there's just, it seems like every time I've, I've not used the GoPro system, I've had a little bit more trouble, but I was really impressed with how it works. So that's really the only 360 system I've used. There's also the Theta camera built by Ricoh that does 4K video, and that's a little bit less expensive. I think that's been out for a couple of years, um, but, I'm, but I don't think that's the gimbal system, you know, the, the stepping um, kind of image stabilization. Man, that made a huge difference for our videos. We were able to watch them. Yeah. I guess you can preview them yeah. um, on your phone with an app. Yeah. Um, just fr- directly from the camera. And it looks awesome, but you can see the motion from right. the stepping and stuff a little bit. And uh, it's cool when you process it through your computer and, and see the, the effects of everything. The full stabilization is really impressive, and it really makes it possible to have like a, a walking or moving video in 360. And I think, I think otherwise, given uh, given like the change in access that would happen, you know, like as as the camera moves through the 3D field and its its Z axis changes, or you kind of spin the camera a little bit, then it kind of throws the rest of the access off. Is how it would be without stabilization. But with stabilization, you're really virtualized in that location, and you're kind of independent from the movement of the camera, which is what's really amazing about the way that it's able to do some of the recording, which, which really gives you a, a much more immersive feel when you're watching the video because you can move the camera independent of any kind of jerky motion that the, the camera recording had in it, which really makes possible for, for videos that are moving. I think otherwise... Uh, it would almost be nauseating to have video that was moving unless it was on some other kind of gimbal system. You yeah. Know, that, that's why probably you've really seen only only like kind of standstill videos up until this point that are related to 360 video. And what's really cool about the, the GoPro 360 is that it really provides you so much opportunity to do moving videos that look really good in this 360 immersive environment in 5.2K. So like when we're, we're compressing down to 4K, it's cool, but oh my goodness, does it take forever on this little laptop? <laughs> yeah, it does. Rendering takes so long. Yeah, so we had it going overnight. 
Um, so it's not a bad, I have a MacBook Pro. It's like a, it's a couple years old now, but there's really not, I mean, there's a few improvements in the MacBook Pro line, but not that many. And I would have had other problems if I had upgraded anyway, but uh, this one isn't like the top of the line by any means. It's capable, but the graphics card, I guess, in a laptop really crushes through fine in HD video and anything else that I've thrown at it to do editing a Final Cut. It's amazingly fast compared to the video editing system I would have had like in high school or college or something like that. Um, so I'm impressed with what I can do, but uh, I upgraded the, the final, upgraded Final Cut 10.4, which is the version that can handle some of the 360 footage. Um, I also installed the GoPro Fusion Studio app, and really it's the process of, of stitching the video together that takes the longest time. So there are enormous files to start with. I think just over the weekend we recorded like 200 gigabytes of files. That we put into the onto the drive, yeah, it was a huge, huge amount. amount. Yeah, um, and then so those have that, that's just before anything's done with it. So I guess it's you know it's a higher quality video, but that then has to be stitched together into an even larger file, and then that has to be brought into your editor and then compressed or edited or rendered together. So all that takes a ton of time. And so, but rendering the stitching is what seems to take the longest amount of time. And if I guess we had it going all night, I think we got in minutes let's say maybe six minutes of video for about eight hours of rendering something like that but it's a lot of rendering time just for this little computer and you can see it going i have this uh, this program this uh, like iStat monitor program that shows you uh like what some of your system components are running at but it's just kind of paying my uh, my graphics system on this laptop and so i hear that you really have to have a ton of horsepower power to get through a lot of the 360 video maybe that's some of the stuff you would have been hearing too about how you have to you have to really, that's really where having like a higher um, capability computer is, is, you know, where you see an advantage in doing this level of rendering. Yeah, my laptop uh, can't even handle what we're trying to do. You need minimum eight gigabytes of RAM. And then it helps to have an SSD so you can pull the video through faster or something like that. And then you have to have a dedicated graphics card, I believe, in the system and it any gosh yeah even with a, a pretty modern system it is extremely slow versus you know a lot of other kind of editing rendering system that, uh, that exists right now but i think it's like one frame a second so if you're to think of like uh video is 30 frames a second i think it's rendering one frame out a second one i guess 360 degree spherical frame uh, or you know equa rectilinear that word that we were learning a little bit about so after it stitches it together, it makes that equirectilinear image of the two 180s sort of mapped onto a rectangle. Really interesting how it's doing it. But it's, it's fascinating to go through all this stuff. It's really fun uh, working with the GoPro camera stuff. But So yeah, this weekend we did like a bunch of travel stuff to try and produce some videos and photos and, and kind of make like a portfolio for some of our 360 stuff. So we traveled. Where was the first place we went? We went to like Saheli Falls. Yeah, really what was that cool like? spot. It's cool. It's beautiful. Um, it was our second time being there, but our first time was just uh, a few days before that. So it was a new spot uh, to us, which was cool. Yeah. Um, it's along the Mackenzie River, and uh, it's a really beautiful place. It's a waterfall just right off the trail. And it's cool because you can climb down from the trail. Uh, there's a kind of self-made trail from, I think, people yeah. back and forth down there. Yeah. Um, but it's really cool. Just a big waterfall and, uh, it kind of goes into a river that drops off into another little tiny waterfall. I don't know if you count it as a waterfall. 
It's a waterfall. It's a little fall. <laughs> it's a beautiful um, spot. It was really cool. I liked I liked the the way that that looked, and and it was interesting kind of learning from that as kind of a composition experience with three sixty video, or for making a three sixty image is sort of being in the bowl of the action. Right. Seems to be kind of an interesting way to produce it, where you have something to look at. Let's say if you were mapping it onto the face of a clock, you have something to look at at your twelve o'clock, but also something to look at at your six o'clock, so that there's a reason to sort of to sort of pan and, and move the camera and the frame of the field around? Yeah, it's a 360 photo or video. So the point is that you look in every direction. Yeah. So and you really have to worthwhile. produce it for that. Yeah. Yeah, there has to be something interesting. Yeah. That was interesting about looking at a lot of the, let's say, the viewpoints that are set up for, let's say, the, you know, the, the perspective that would be taken for a photograph, let's say. Um, that and those really don't seem to work very well for composing these 360 images. So I guess that's kind of the tip of the thing that I learned pretty quickly is uh, when trying to put it together, you, it, like you can't be back up against the trail or back up against the road or something like that to, to kind of view out toward whatever the subject is. Let's say the waterfall in this case, because um, really what you experience most of is 180 degrees of just a trail and, and dirt and trees and things that aren't really that. Uh, that interesting visually to look at. So it's interesting trying to trying to mediate all of those different angles that you could look at in a 360 degree view, which is where you really have to think about the, the method in which you're composing the image a lot to put yourself in a position where there's something pretty at all angles of view that you have. Isn't it difficult to think of, you know, like in photography, you just have to try and worry about getting, getting just that little bit to look good in composition, but in 360, you have to think about every, every field of it, every part of the field of view. Yeah. It was a fun and uh, interesting additional thing to think about with composing something that's like visual media. It is really fun, but it's a challenge. It's, um, I don't know, I guess it's just a different type of perspective of, of trying to, to think of something that looks good. You know, something that a lot, well, like looking at 360 video, a lot of people don't seem to notice that part of it yet. Um, right, there'll they'll be like a, a background that's just a driveway or parking lot sure, or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Where, uh, where so that's why I'm seeing like some of the, the successful, um, the successful elements of 360 video are bringing you into an immersion of it. And uh, of course, you know, of course, that's what you do. But so it was interesting going through and, uh, and trying to produce some of that uh, in this way. But even with uh, like some of the the company videos that I did, like trying to walk through and do like a, a tour of uh, a retail location. Um, that was kind of interesting to do where, you know, instead of maybe skirting the side of the building or something, but you just kind of walk right through, but it's interesting where you can, you can have the view 360 degrees around you. So you're really trying to like build an environment where you get to see the perspective. It was cool. Um, so we went to Saheli Falls, we walked the trail around there, which is a, a place also where I learned the same lesson about composition, where the trail is beautiful out toward the river or out toward a lot of angles, but then the trail is also not that it's, it's also kind of just a lot of wood or you know a lot of broken pieces a lot of a lot of wood and branches and things that aren't really the forest in its beauty so it's right. interesting to see that yeah when you're using it you really do notice pretty quickly what is not visually interesting or yeah. attractive well you just you, you see all the places around you you would not take a picture of yeah and you're like well i wouldn't take a picture of that or that or that or that but that's all in the picture now so so it's interesting to kind of consider that sort of stuff. But that, that's really the, 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 
the challenge, I guess, in trying to do storytelling or composition in photography for 360. But it's but it's also possible too. Like 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 what we were saying, we found is getting to that center position, like a, an area with a creek and a waterfall, is really kind of uh, naturally conducive to being compositionally interesting for some type of 360 VR content. We have. Uh, a semi-static but comprehensible landscape that you're surrounded by. And then in a waterfall, it's sort of a natural position where you're going to have a, a geographical bowl where you're sort of set in with it. It's also going to be green around all of your angles. You know, it's, it's blowing water up and it's sort of making everything green. Um, and then you have like the creek that flows out from that. That's another piece of motion that you get to look at. Um, so all of this kind of pieces sort of work together where you can look up and see like the forest and stuff around you. Um, so that was a really pretty way to shoot that. And uh, it's a really interesting way to kind of look at and visualize what was there. And it's fun to see, you know, afterwards, you're like, well, this is like, this is like what it was when I was there. So it was really fun. Um, but yeah, I like doing the hike stuff along the river there too. I also like the photos that we got from up there. I was talking about that, some of the images, just the still images that we took. Oh, through, just with the just sun through cameras. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's a beautiful area. So um, just, you know, obviously, like, still liking to take pictures. It was really fun to take photos. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Water. Well, you know, Very like, pretty the spring uh, snow melt is so, like, crystal clear right now that the water yeah. just looks blue. It has, yeah. like, a light, luminant blue to it. It's cool. Yeah, it was really beautiful. The water was really blue, and it was so clear. You could see all of the, the rocks, and a lot of the rocks had... Uh, like moss on them i guess so it was green underneath the blue water and it was really pretty yeah yeah that was a beautiful spot so th that part of the mckenzie's always been really interesting and i think uh there on the mckenzie on and then i think it's well actually what is it the uh maybe the calipulia the santiam i don't know the one that goes up from like uh like corvallis albany that one's really nice too or, you know, it's like really mossy and like, or it just looks uh, foresty, that sort of a thing. It looks kind of like a rainforest almost in some of those spots. But, um, but yeah, it's a beautiful spot getting up there. So we traveled to there. We went up kind of in the Cascade area. We went to a bunch of spots. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. The 360 degree photo work over the last couple of weeks, which has been really cool, and I've uh, enjoyed it a lot. I really like doing the 360 stuff. I think uh, back in June of 2018, we had done a bunch of podcasts about some of the 360 uh, photography stuff that we were trying to do, some of the video stuff that we were doing with the GoPro Fusion at the time, and that was all really uh, cool. And I liked that video a lot. This time, I was working with a Ricoh Theta Z1, and I was going around to a few locations to try and get some photographs. Uh, specifically, I think photographs a lot in this circumstance, not so many videos, um, but, uh, but yeah, really interested in the, in the 360 photography stuff that I was able to, to edit together and to, to capture during that time. So that was cool. But I went out to an area in, uh, in central Oregon that was pretty cool and went up on like a hillside to, uh, 
do some 360 work. And it's cool out there because you can really see the topography of how the Great Basin was formed at the, well, I guess like during the whole era of the Pleistocene as it was for a long standing period of time, uh, like a, a, a lake. It was just a big lake out there. And then as things started changing at the end of the Pleistocene, I think there was huge changes that, that ended the Great Basin stuff, that ended a lot of the megafauna that was in the area. And that kind of changed the topography of the landscape over the last 10,000 years to be something that's much more of the high desert, sagebrush, juniper tree, exposed rock uh, landscape that we see today. And a lot less of the uh, forested, uh, temperate kind of mountain climate that we have through the Cascades and through part of Oregon. I'm sure it was always more dry given the rain shout of the Cascade Mountains there. But I think that for a long period of time... As according to signs posted on my drives uh, in areas where I go hiking sometimes. But, uh, you know, like when you go up to some place and it says, you know, this area so such and such time ago had these animals in it. Well, you see like giant beavers or you see like camels or, all, or giant sloths, I guess they had in the area too. There's all sorts of stuff that they had uh, that ended up being wiped out, I don't know, 100,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago to what? 10, 20, 10,000 years ago, something like that. There's a lot of changes that happened over the period of the Pleistocene, I guess during what they call the Quaternary Period, a, a period of uh, glaciations that the Earth has been involved in for the last 100,000 or 200, maybe a million years. I'm not sure. It's, it's the last couple hundred thousand years we've been going in these cycles of glaciations. Or, you know, we're in an Ice Age period. So we go into an Ice Age, like we have ice on the Earth right now, and it'll be more ice at a point and then less ice at a point. More ice at a point, less ice at a point. I guess that's been going on for what they say, somewhere around like 200,000 years of these 30,000-year periods of glaciation to non-glaciation uh, where, like, I think we're coming, we're, like, on the far end of the glacial maximum now. So we had the with the glacial maximum about, like, what, 11,000, 12,000 years ago? Or is that right? No, it must have been, t like, 15,000, 20,000 years ago that we were at the maximum. Then it started receding, I suppose. That's when we were able to... No. That doesn't make sense. We had like the land bridge, like the Beringia stuff, where people got over. That was probably fifteen to 20,000. Sea levels were lower. They sailed away at like 400 feet. They skirted along the coastlines. They came over through the land. So that was all pretty long ago. Well, anyway, at some point, like, like I was there, like I'm going to figure out, wait, let me remember. <laughs> let me think back to 15,000 years ago. Where was I? Yeah, I wasn't here. Uh, so I don't know what happened. But apparently there's been some recorded evidence that I was learning about. Um, in I think it's like Monteverde down in Chile. And that's a location where uh, I think they had carbon dated something to 15,000 years old, like human remains, human element remains there's uh there's like a, a few locations here in oregon where they they i guess have evidence of the clovis people that's sort of around like the 11 12 13 000 year mark and then there's other evidence of things that are i don't know within like the it's tough it's like anything from like 7500 years to 15,000 years ago seems to all kind of be in flux of a date because there's really not many not many perfect ways to date that and if it's a cultural artifact, like a an arrowhead or a pot shard or a scraper, 
there's there's some indication of how those things are going to be created or how those artifacts are going to be created and how those are going to remain like Folsom points or Clovis points are pretty distinct from each other, but they're not really culturally distinct from each other. So it could be like a variation of many different tribes and languages and peoples uh, all well unrelated to each other, but related with a similar vein of technology for a few thousand years of, you know, their, their tool use shape was kind of similar because they're all kind of from a similar descendancy. But I think when you get like a more than a hundred miles away, your, your languages separate over you know, like a couple generations. You're just going to speak different languages. Um, but man, wild stuff. Anyway, so I don't remember where we even started with this, but I was out in Eastern Oregon exploring the Great Basin. I went up on a hillside in public land and I was doing some 360 photography work with the Rico Zeta Oh wait, Rico Theta Z1. That's what it is. And yeah, I was capturing some stuff on a hillside, really beautiful areas up there where those ridges kind of drop in and out. And so it's cool when you get like up to a higher elevation, you can kind of see the pockets of where these lakes and pools of water and uh, had kind of sat and rested for what seems like I think I was saying something about recording some 360 photographs up on some public land in the high desert in the the Lake County Great Basin area of eastern Oregon beautiful spot over there I really enjoy it and uh, yeah it was awesome to, to use the Rico Theta Z1 to be capturing some images uh, up in that area. It's cool when you're at a higher elevation and with the 360 camera uh, you can kind of, uh, you can kind of, I don't know, it, it provides a, a little bit of a, a different perspective. It seems silly to say like wider but uh, when you re, when you kind of replay those images and you're able to sort of look around in context of what's to the left and to the right of you, you're kind of able to put together the the context of the landscape a little better and a little faster than you could if you just had a series of individual photographs that had segments of the wider landscape captured in it. So it was cool at that higher elevation. Uh, you could you could kind of look down to areas that we had been hiking around earlier in the day through uh, some of the ridges and troughs that would be uh, over in that area. And you can look down, you know, it's like uh, 500 feet down in elevation to what we thought was kind of the mountaintop pass. And then past that is another maybe thousand foot or a couple hundred foot uh, drop in elevation as it goes down toward the lake basin area. So all that was pretty cool. And, and what was also cool about it is just sort of visualizing how populated that area had been in the past. I think, uh, you know, prior to... Uh, the western expansion of the United States and uh, as thousands of years had passed by and uh, this region of land in the northwest it had been populated and that region specifically had been populated by uh, nomadic tribes that had been able to travel and subsist off of uh, the wild game that was there I think a lot of like antelope and deer and it looks like bighorn sheep uh, by some of their uh, well I don't know some kind of sheep but uh it looks like that from uh, from some of their their pictographs and petroglyph information that they left there. And the dynamics of some of those populations of animals have changed in the time uh, now, given like modern day. I don't know. If, I don't know if we're going to see a lot of sheep out there in Lake County, but there's one drawn on a rock out there, so they must have been trying to look for it. There's a lot of them in the southwest as you move into the I think the Modoc tribes. From that's more of a three thousand to twenty five, two thousand. I don't know. It's probably about a three thousand to. 600 years ago sort of a thing but 
or a hundred years ago, really. I think I was like Captain Jack over there, Captain Jack Stronghold for the Modoc Indian Reservation area. Uh, that was like in the Indian Wars of the 1850s, so they lasted till then. But uh, um, yeah, there's some information about uh, some of the uh, uh, Paiute, the Paiute Indians. I think the northern Paiute that were in that area of uh, southern, southeastern Oregon, Nevada, then into Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, if I kind of understood right. But I know there's some fluctuations in there um, and, and differences in timing and stuff. But, but yeah, it's all uh, pretty cool stuff. It was really uh, it was awesome to get out there. It was, get, it was cool to get out and kind of walk around in some areas of uh, some public land where we still have some access and still get out to um, try and do some photography stuff even in this uh, period where you're supposed to stay home and there's a lockdown. It was, uh, it was cool to kind of get out and try and do some exploring and some social distance conscious. Um, I mean, hey, that's fine with me. I don't, I don't really have to be around a lot of people. It's better to do landscape wildlife photography work while you're uh, sort of in some type of isolation. I'm sure like a lot of hunters are kind of considering something like that too. You know, hunters, fishermen, people are like hiking or, uh, you know, a lot of those solo activities. It's cool that, uh, you know, this kind of, this time uh, sort of has provided a little bit of a reset for probably a lot of people out there to uh, have a bit more time to invest in some of the things that they'd want to. I suppose a lot of folks are probably stuck more in their local area, but um, but it's a great time to uh, to get to invest in some things that seem more important to you. So that's what I've been trying to do. Hope you guys are doing well. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. You can check out more at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. I've been doing a ton of updates over there. Is there a plane taking off? Sounds like there's a prop plane that's about to fly over my head. It's like that scene in North by Northwest where Cary Grant starts getting run down by that biplane. That'd be scary. So that's not in my future. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com. A few new things up there. Some stuff on the homepage. Some good links to other, other outbound sources. Some, some links to books. Some links to some podcasts. Links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.